0: Welcome to a podcast Uh, as a fresh faced high school student with no exposure to the concept of uh, literary canon or and only uh, forcibly exposed to Edgar Allan Poe by my father, the guest of today's episode um, and what was retrospectively about of frustrated sarcasm, uh, how quickly I finished all of his previous recommendations, he told me to read The Raven when I was in middle school, and I did not expect to fall in love with the twisted mind of a gothic mastermind. Much less that eight years down the line i would be hosting a podcast discussing the way his works have become intertwined with my studies of literature the first time that i recognized poe's brilliance and the level to which i loved analyzing his work was the first time i was ever taught poe in school the cask of amontillado a revenge story oft taught in high schools but overlooked in higher education caught my attention due to the unique voice poe presents within the story and the way that hundreds of years before the rise of the modern suspense genre Poe subverts and almost seems to predict the rise of the shock ending, a trope in mystery and suspense stories that has become greatly overused as time goes on, slowly removing the impact that it has on its audience. In today's episode, I'm joined by the man who introduced me to Edgar Allan Poe, my father, Frank Meyer, who will be here to discuss with me The Cask of Amontillado, the first Poe story I was ever introduced to, and still to this day, one of my favorites. So welcome to a podcast. I hope you enjoy. Testing, testing. Can you hear me? Hello. Hello. Hi, Dad. How you doing? Good. I can hear you just fine. All right. Just getting a signal check and an audio check in here. Alrighty. righty. Um, throughout discussion, I meant to ask you this on the phone beforehand. Um, do you have a preference on what I call you? <laughs>
1: You can call me Dad, or Frank, or Mr. Meyer, whatever you want. All dad right. is probably...
0: I'm just going to call you Dad, because that's the whole part of my intro. Because I don't know if you remember this, but when we went to Holiday World, <laughs> when I was, like, maybe 12, we rode the Raven for the first time. And I asked you what it was named after, because all, I knew all the other ones were named after, like, halloween stories. And you told me it was... Yeah. Named after a poem by Poe and that I should read it. And so I read it.
1: <laughs> oh, I didn't remember it. I didn't know that at all. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> I've written about it a lot. Positive
1: influence on you, I guess. I huh? sort
0: I sort of upsold it for uh,
1: comedic effect in
0: a lot of papers saying like, um, my dad told me because I had run out of things to read that I should read Poe when I was younger out of spite because he thought I wouldn't understand it. <laughs> I've done that uh, as I've used that as a joke in a, a couple of papers because I thought it was a fun way of playing it. But yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> you told me that yeah, it was, it's funny. It was a poem and I I didn't get taught the poem in middle school like a lot of people did or high school. So that oh, was really? the only time that I was ever exposed to the Raven. So which is by the way huh. that's my other episode. I don't know if you saw that. Um yeah. Uh-uh. So uh, yeah, I'm going to fire up my intro at like 2.15 on the timer. Can you see the old timer? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, so just try and stay quiet and keep the dogs quiet or whatever uh, until that point, and we'll be good. Okay.
1: Okay.
0: Hello and welcome back to a podcast. I'm your host Owen Meyer. Today I'm joined by someone very special to me and the man who theoretically got me into Edgar Allan Poe in the first place. I'm joined by my father, Mr. Frank Meyer, a former English educator educator and current high school principal. Uh, any things to say to the listeners, dear father?
1: Uh, hi, Owen. Glad to be here. Hi, listeners. Uh, proud to be with you on your, on your assignments in college.
0: Uh, What can you tell the listeners about yourself and your experience with Poe that I might not have hinted at?
1: Well, obviously, since I'm much older than you, I've read Poe for a much longer period of time. and uh, Introduced to uh, Poe when I was a kid, um, probably with The Raven, uh, likely with um, uh, Annabelle Lee as well, and then, of course, Casca Bontillado. Uh, other short stories I've read with him. Uh, I was an English teacher uh, for five years and uh, enjoyed Poe and taught ninth graders. And "Cask of Amontillado was one of the favorites every year. I just adore this particular story. I think it's uh, simple and straight to the point. uh, It's fun to read and teach.
0: So before we get into the more in-depth discussion, I think it's very important that the um, unfamiliar amongst the listener base are given the opportunity to be introduced to a brief synopsis of the summary of Cask of Montiato. Uh Would you care to provide such a thing?
1: Sure. Um, so it begins uh, with uh, our, our main contresor, who is really not named throughout, but we assign him that name because his family is mentioned. Uh, And his um, perceived nemesis is Fortunato, and um, they are, and and Mitrasaur starts off the uh, story most uh, significantly with uh, a point that he's been impugned in some way, Uh, he has been mistreated, and Fortunato is the person who's done that, and uh, we get the sense from the first few lines that Montresor is going to exact his revenge in some way on Fortunato. As we progress through the story, uh, we see, uh, we know what to expect at the end, but uh, we're just kind of learning uh, as we go along with other readers how uh, Fortunato ultimately may meet his demise at the hand. Uh, and i will leave it at that so as to not spoil everything for people
0: awesome this leads directly into my first major question my first important talking point one of the things that you expressed interest in discussing with me when we were discussing this episode ahead of time was poe's use of uh the shock ending or the twist ending which is um something that has become incredibly popular in modern fiction i think of um mystery narratives like Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, where the big reveal comes through in the very ending. Um, Well, there's an interesting sense to the Castle of Montiato in that the ending, in terms of how Montresor will actually kill Fortunato is unknown. However, when we very first meet Montresor, we get the first line, the thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could. But when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge meaning that the common narrative device used by these shock-ending mystery stories of concealing the motivations behind a character's actions is not something that Poe wanted to capitalize on in Cask of This being said, somehow the story is still suspenseful and gripping, and it's always interested me um, how Poe manages to pull pull this off without hiding Montresor's true intentions from the outset of the story. What do you have to say about
1: that? Well, I think sometimes when we're reading or watching, Okay. in which we know something is going to happen whether it's tragic or happy or or we just kind of know the culminating end to it ahead of time or at least have an idea of what it could be um, oftentimes we we keep reading or watching just because we want to it all unfold and um, um, I think that part of the excitement of this just finding out how the writer gets to this happening uh, at the end—that is, as you know, considered uh, by the reader at the beginning as what his demise. Uh, this is an irony that creates a tension for the reader and/or watcher, and one. And we want to know how Fortunato will realize ultimately uh, he's being brought to his demise.
0: It's an interesting thing. It really does play out masterfully in Cask of Monteado through Poe's um, development of the relationship between the two characters. It's very much—I had it described as where a lot of stories are a who done it. Cask of Monteado is a how done it because we know the culprit, we know the outcome, but what Poe is doing is keeping us gripped in what is happening. Will Fortunato ever find out? Well, he does. Will he manage to take any of the many? Opportunities that Montresor gives him to double back. There's almost an interesting level to which Montresor seems to be doubting his own conviction. Whether sarcastically or not, he does give Fortunato the option to return to the upstairs and to not continue to obtain the cask of Amontillado, the story is titled after. But Poe manages to keep us invo- invested and involved in the story just by making us wonder how the events are going to play out. And it's one of the reasons that the ending is so gripping and shocking, despite the fact that we knew the whole time that something bad was going to happen to Fortunato. And one of the reasons for that is one of the major distinct parts of Casper Montiato and also Poe in general that becomes more clear once you are no longer fixated on the ending, which is Poe's use of wordplay and double entendres and dialogue between Montessor and Fortunato leading up to Fortunato's ultimate fate. What role do you see poses of language playing in developing the tone of the story? Uh, what do you think the story loses in particular if we were to write it in a more straightforward sense with less wordplay?
1: Well, this is, I think it uh, might be a little more straightforward uh, than we think. That's a very linear, uh, you, you kind of gave me a preview on some questions. So I think that uh, I might answer that a little later, But um, the Play shows that uh, you know you can use certain words with individuals uh, and, and uh, I can use certain words with you, Owen, that uh, will stroke your ego and uh, make you feel flattered and you will want to continue. It's kind of like uh, teasing a, a, a pet with a and that's what uh, Montresor is doing here a little bit with Fortunato as he uh, brings him Uh, down the stairs using wordplay to kind of offer up well no you don't want this no you sure are you sure and and that is really just Montresor knowing how to play uh Fortunato's weaknesses of character Uh, he you know compares you know he'll compare Fortunato to the Lucchese Lucchese family and uh and Mont Fortunato says oh that's a that's that's a disgrace. I'm not like them. Um, Fortunato's getting drunk, and getting drunker as he goes through. Um, Fortunato is willing to suffer for this, for the sacrifice to make to try this Amontillado wine that uh, Montresor is luring him to. Um, ultimately, he's not realizing uh, that uh, he's he's insulted Montresor this entire. Time and Montresor has a motive, and him. I mean, it's even uh, very clear throughout what when he pulls in the Latin and says his family um, uh, motto is Enemo Impune Lessictus. And that means I probably pronounced that wrong. It's been a while since I took Latin, uh, <laughs> but no one attacks me with impunity. Uh, and impunity. And I think I used that earlier, impugned, um, mm-hmm. uh, doing so without punishment. And, uh, you know, Montresor has the wherewithal or the wits about him being intoxicated and being flattered, drunk on flattery, too, um, that he realizes what Montresor is even saying to him uh, and that uh, he will not go. Without punishment in the very near future. So I think all of this wordplay uh, is rather simple. It's rather uh, there's some there's some you know diction in there that's a little bit more complicated, uh, and you have to do a little work uh, if you're a student of this. But uh, when Poe wrote this, and I think he wrote it in 1846 or 7, um, you know, a lot of people would have known what known Latin. Taken Latin classes uh, as a classical uh, education, and those who read this probably understood exactly what that meant. And um, so it was—it was very telling to the reader at that time. Nowadays, obviously, we don't know Latin like maybe we should, uh, but it's—it's um, uh, it's really ingenious how he uses that and how um, he can learn so much from his use of words.
0: Yeah, notably, there's only one um, other time in the story when uh, Poe explicitly uses Latin, which is at the very ending. Uh-huh. What yep. class Classic. Uh, in poche which we've got or uh, rest in peace. I've never actually heard it in the order that Poe wrote it in. I've always heard it uh, rest in Pache, But you know, that's just because we like to rearrange it to match our current letters. Um, Dear reader, please recognize that when he said Montresor leading Montresor as Montresor got drunk into the basement, he was referring to Fortunato. Fortunato is being led by Montresor and slowly becoming more intoxicated. Uh, In a lot of readings, Montresor has also been drinking, so there is a sense in which he is probably also intoxicated, and maybe that is partially leading to his willingness to go through with this violence. But... As we made explicitly clear, it is in his family lineage and his family beliefs that you cannot act out against the Montresor without retaliation. And so it is a very fitting character choice for Montresor, ultimately, to um, remove the fortune from Fortunato, uh, as one of my classmates told me. Yeah,
1: I, I hate to interrupt you, but I think also, um, you know, there's a point in which talking about the family and the... Uh, um, well, uh, the coat of arms and talking about the Montresor family was uh, that past tense uh, indicates that perhaps Fortunato has and his family in some way, um, maybe not directly Montresor, but his family in general. Um, so that that might, you know, Montresor may be the representative of the whole family, which is also part of why maybe didn't name him as the narrator and, and, or, or as, the, as that primary character. We don't really we just assign that name to him. We don't know if his name's Bill or Bob or Fred. Um, we assign Montresor based on the family name. And so he could be a representation of the entire family.
0: That is a very notable point, okay. though I will say I always like to think that Montresor's first name was Owen and Fortunato's was Frank, but you know, that's a totally <laughs> different
1: point. Oh, you're um, hilarious.
0: There's a very um, interesting thing to point out in the fact that not only do we not have a explicit name or recognition for Montresor, but also we don't know what these thousand injuries of Fortunato that he has borne the best he could are. It's an incredibly interesting plot point to obscure. And it's very, very Poe because he loves to withhold information to increase suspense. Like, Sure, we could empathize with Montresor if we knew that these thousand injuries were, say, the loss of his family's fortune and the death of his mother or something like that. But it's much more suspenseful and Montresor is much more of an entertaining sort of um, psychopathic villain of a main character when you don't know exactly why he's doing what he's doing. For all you know, these thousand injuries could literally be a thousand tiny jokes or insults thrown at him at dinner parties by Fortunato over, over decades, that he has just taken to the extreme of revenge and murder. And I think it's one of the really interesting things that Cask does, is that it, it's very careful with what details are known to the reader and what details are not known to the reader. Yep. Are you looking to get away? Tired of all the dead bodies hidden in the walls of your Italian mansion? Has your Amontillado run dry? Well, use Airbnb, the sponsor of today's episode, to find a fantastic getaway to anywhere else in the world. Airbnb guarantees quality and guarantees that you'll have a great stay free of murderous family hatred. As Poe would say, you better just do it. Thanks to Airbnb for sponsoring the episode and back to the show. And we're back. Welcome back to a podcast, a very edupocational podcast about Edgar Allan Poe. I'm your host, Owen Meyer, once again, joined by my father and former educator, Frank Meyer. We're going to go into an interesting discussion here about something that caught my fancy when it came to researching Casco Monteado*, which is, it seems to be a text that is primarily centered in lower levels of education. Uh, we discussed earlier that you taught is to high school freshmen, uh, ninth graders, and it's interesting that I have not had any discussion of Cask of Amontillado that wasn't prompted by me in any higher level of education. So as an educator, is there something that you think makes Cask a particular um, selection of Poe that is usable for teaching an entry level um, as opposed to other works of Poe that you've been exposed to? Is it just because of the wordplay and the, the impact of the ending, or is there something else that you see as a notable reason that um, lower levels of education choose to use Cask of Montiano as one of the um, introductions to Edgar Allan Poe?
1: Yeah, I think earlier I mentioned that it's a pretty linear story, and, you know, uh, at the ninth grade level, you try to teach, um, you know, things that will engage students, of course, probably not uh, heavy-duty readers, Um, and it's usually taught at the, you know, general education level, not at the, um, you know, high ability level where you were uh, in high school, and so it's kind of skipped over because it might be a little too simple. It's a really good story, though, and uh, it has high entertainment value, and and what students about it, uh, what my students really about it was just the creepiness of it. Um, and I used to use it to teach the, you know, that, that plot line, that inverted check mark kind of uh, uh, plot line for my understanding They understand how something was laid out, uh, how a story might be laid out. And, you know, um, traditional plot line has, you know, that uh, exposition. First few lines in Poe kind of lays out, here's, here's where the story is going. And, and you know, I'm going to get this guy back, basically. Mm-hmm. And then the, there's there's conflict uh, uh, in which uh, you know the conflict is an internal conflict. He's frustrated with himself that something like this has happened to him, and also uh, just with Fortunato in general. There's a rising action uh, as actually, which is interesting. It's a rising action as they uh, descend into uh, the vault. Uh, to- mm-hmm go to the wine and then the climax is when, you know, into the go into the um alcove and uh then he gets chained and uh you know doesn't really he's disordered uh then um you know uh Trinado is is yelling at him and I think this is a scene I've seen in movies where Fortunato screams at Montresor, and Montresor just screams back, like mocking him. And that is really the height of it. And then there's the Denouement where he builds the wall and starts to feel a sense of fear and dread, and and finally throws the the torch into uh, the wall through the final hole, and then seals up the hole. Uh, and then we find out that the story is retold some fifty years uh, past. So. Um, very interesting how it follows that plot line uh and um really doesn't seem to come to a resolution other than uh we know uh fortunato's gone and uh, montresor burying someone alive 50 years ago
0: yeah um there's an interesting thing with poe it's a little unrelated to the education subpoint, but poe has this thing with burying people in walls or in holes and having them come mm-hmm. back another episode that i recorded earlier today we were talking about Poe's the black cat where the narrator kills his wife hides her in a yep. wall and ultimately knocks down that wall and reveals his wife's location to the police uh, in the ending which is a surprisingly funny very Casper of humor um poe sort of morose humor that he liked to include um it's interesting, I was made aware to the fact that there is actually a form of medieval punishment called immurement, where they would bury someone alive inside of a brick wall, which is certainly something that a person like Poe would have been aware of. Um, I just wanted to raise that point to the reader because I found it kind of interesting. Um, yeah, I, I would
1: bet... Or... Po- Go ahead. I'm sorry. I would bet Poe possibly been buried alive uh, and um, you know, that, that claustrophobic sense he had, there was, a, there's, you know, speculation that he was, you know, not only a raging alcoholic, which that's how he died, but, um, you know, he probably had some mental illness as well, which played a lot into, um, the creepiness of some of his tales.
0: Yeah, I would 100% agree. I actually, um, Dear listeners, go listen to the Black Cat episode. It's a two-parter. It's super fun. We talk about mental health and Poe. It's great. Um, but I would 100% agree with that um, idea that some of Poe's mental health and some of his fears were directly played into the notions of the horror that he created. Um, he probably read something or saw something about a and was like, oh, that's so terrifying. I don't want that to happen to me, but I can have it happen to this character in one of my stories. Um you sort of already hinted at it, but to continue the education discussion from a little bit earlier, um, you seem to think that it's the simplicity of caste that is the reason that it might be overlooked in higher levels of education in favor of um, other works of Poe. For example, I was taught Black Cat, I was taught Imp of the Perverse, and I was taught Fall of the House of Usher in college when it comes to Poe. Um, and all of those, I think, have this implicit level of complexity to them narratively in terms of what is and isn't real and the number of characters and interweaving connections between them um, that Cask of Montillado does not have. Do you think the simplicity of Cask makes it deserve to be overlooked or do you think there is room for Cask to be explored at higher levels of education?
1: Well, I think that um, I don't I don't think it deserves to be overlooked. I just think uh, as as you look at a canon and, and you're introduced to someone uh, who is part of a literary canon, uh, where, where's the easiest entry point uh, for students? And, you know, kn- knowing in a curricular sequence that, you know, it's likely my kids learned uh, Cask of Amontillado or they heard part of Raven. Um, that kind of have a foundation for the more difficult pieces like the black cat and the, so uh, I I don't think it's something that's overlooked. I think it's probably pretty um, and intentional that it is where it is. Um, I'm a number of uh, theses written on the Montiato uh, simpler stories of his, but, um, you know, to, to say it's not worthy is uh, definitely, you know, not, not applicable to this. Story. It's It's very worthy.
0: One of the things that I've heard mentioned that sort of downgrades the quality of Cask on, upon rereading, one of the reasons that it might not be as uh heavily discussable at a higher level where you're trying for multiple interpretations and rereadability and complexity, right? Is the fact that once you know about the immurement of Fortunato and how he gets burned alive, supposedly, by this torch that Montresor throws at him, right? This twist ending, once it's revealed, um, that the story loses its value. You Once you know the ending, task of Montiato is no longer as entertaining and worth discussing. Um, and I mentioned in the open that one of the things that Hi, Mom! (laughs) Meg. It's okay, it's okay. I'm keeping this in. It's it's too Meyer family for me to not include. (laughs) The dog's getting in the way of someone trying to be productive. Um, I mentioned in the open that the twist ending has become more and more prevalent in um, pop culture nowadays. And you mentioned being interested in discussing Poe's particular use of the twist ending as a trope. Um, But with mystery fiction heavily relying upon the twist ending for shock value to maintain audience interest, interest, the problem seems to be that often these endings sometimes don't fit the clues established in the text before them someone argue that it's even present in Cask of because there's nothing explicitly to tell you that this is how he's going to kill him in the end. It's really just leading you to something is going to happen. And then post like, here's what happens. And you're like, whoa, he entombed him and burned him. Whoa, that's crazy. Um, Do you agree with that theory? Do you think that knowing the ending of Cask... um, makes the story less valuable upon rereads. Do you think that the ending in some senses can feel undeserved to someone who didn't catch all the intricacies of the wordplay throughout
1: the story? Um, you know, it's been probably a dozen years or more since I read that. at, At least many times in two or three years, um, and I still found something new in it this time around. Something I didn't remember. It jogged my memory. Um, I think knowing some foundational pieces of it at the start, and then reread, I feel like maybe I even got more out of it this time than I have in the past. Now, when you look at some of the, you know, popular things, um, you know, it they are kind of you know they they don't create the characters that are interesting they don't um, uh, imagery that's quite as as vivid as poe who knows what a is nobody no no 14 or 15 year old knows what that is <laughs> but when you've got a t- they're guiding them and telling them this is a type of wine that yeah, I'm not aware if it's even you know, something of today. Um, It is. (laughs) It is. Well, there you go. It's actually
0: a type uh, of sherry. I had my um, I had one of my professors make a very funny comment about this, how Poe, the uh, lowbrow alcoholic who probably got drunk on whatever was readily available to him for cheap, uh, makes a joke about how uh, Fortunato could not tell Amontillado from Sherry when in fact Amontillado is Sherry.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. I've
0: been well, trying I've been you waiting know, for to <laughs> sneak that joke in.
1: <laughs> and, and you know, as, as as you say that, and I hear that professor saying that, does it make you wonder sometimes maybe uh, Poe is actually Fortunato and the drink is leading him down to his demise where he's closed in and burning up from um, all of the drink and he can't talk himself out of continuing to do it. So maybe that's another discovery I've just made or and I've read this probably 15, 20 times uh, in my life um, and hadn't thought of that. So that is what's interesting this now I think I could probably find that with Agatha Christie I think I could find it with Faulkner you know Rose for Emily is one of my favorite all-time stories and um, it has a similar type of twist ending to it uh, and you know nowadays there's just so much of it it's it loses some of its luster for me uh, to watch unless, unless it's really really well told Uh, and I said watch, read, unless it's really, really well told.
0: You mentioned that A Rose for Emily Stands is one of your all-time favorite stories, and it is in this sort of subgenre that Cask also falls into. Um, Would you consider that is there anything that's come out, say, in the last 20 years? I know I didn't pre-prompt you for this question, but I think it's interesting to ask. Is there anything that's come out in my lifetime, the last 20, 25 years, that you think uses the format of the mystery and the twist ending to a even comparable level to Rose for Emily or Cast Monfiato or... Um, Imp of the Perverse, Telltale Heart, Black Cat, any of these master
1: words of Poe? Yeah, so uh, in the last 20 or 25 years, um, there's one thing that sticks out. It might be a little older than that. It might fall in the 35-year range. Um, but before that, there was also Shirley Jackson's The Lottery and her tales that were very um, amazing. But I would say... Uh, from Stephen King uh, skeleton key. It's a collection of short stories. There's, I I, I really can't remember the name of the um, story, but about a guy who has landed on a desert Island. And Mm -hmm. the only thing that has survived besides him uh, is uh, several kilos of cocaine. uh, And he is starving. There's nothing to eat. He ends up eating parts of himself, uh, and keeping it, a, a, it's basically in um, diary form. And at the end is uh, ultimately he's, he's basically eaten himself to the right animal anymore. Uh, and that just, um, you know, devouring himself to stay alive. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's fascinating how it ends. And um, just, just the whole series of those events. And it's rather, it's not very long either, um, but it's, it's really complex, uh, in its, in its, uh, in the, uh, it's constructed in the mind and the imagery that you get. And I think that's just as strong as what Poe's imagery was. I think Stephen King will go down, uh, and, and, you know, some of the high, uh, snooty people who don't believe he's a great author, um. Uh, which I didn't think 25, 30 years ago he was. Now I've learned to appreciate him more. And uh, I think he's a Pope like or Shirley Jackson like, and we'll be teaching Stephen King's story in uh, high school classrooms within the next 15, 20
0: I would agree with that. Uh, quite notably, that collection, uh, Skeleton Crew, which you gave me a copy of for one of my birthdays, uh, and I have read in its completion multiple times, contains uh, my all-time favorite Stephen King short story, The Mist, as well as a poem that yep. King wrote um, that is entitled For Owen, which I like to think is the reason you gave it to me, though you probably just gave it to me for The Mist. Um, and the name of the short story that you were referring to is Survivor Type, which the Wikipedia quite, refer- you. quite literally refers to you as going too far <laughs> in his uh-huh. description of the downfall of this surgeon on an island and his journaling and his descent into addiction. Interesting parallel between King and um, Poe that both wrote about addiction at some point and both experienced addiction at some point. Uh, I am a huge lover of Stephen King as well. Um, works like Mr. Mercedes, I think stand up as some of the greatest works of suspense fiction ever written. Um, and I 100% agree that even 10 years down the line, um, people will be considering King, as worthy of being taught alongside these all-time greats. I don't know if he'll ever enter into canon. I don't know if any modern author will really be permitted to enter into canon until 100 years in the future, because that's how the literary community is. But...
1: Uh, well, well,
0: Highbrow, snooty people that you talk about.
1: (laughs) To Kill a Mockingbird is only 65 years old, 63 years old. You know, Faulkner stuff is just now approaching you know eighties and nineties year old. So a hundred years might be, I, I think you're, you're making it worse than it is. I think, um, I think, I think we're going to see Stephen King sooner than you think.
0: Uh, just a wild theoretical question. You're given the opportunity to teach one work of King in your high school freshman year class. Do you have something you would pick? Uh,
1: if we had time, uh, it would yeah. likely be the stand um <laughs> I, but that 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 is a year long uh yeah that's 100 so pages you know yeah. You know, um but i think it's just that it's got so many elements of you know the archetypal journey the the um finding yourself the um band together i mean the survival i mean there's it so much to it um it's and so dense um and you can create a series of storylines from it that's something but if i i think if i had to teach shorter pieces of course uh i think that skeleton crew uh would be really great to teach a series of stories from
0: i would agree i i um I was taught the first time i was taught in an academic context the mist was this year um with professor harry brown who i've raved about to you and who was also the guest on my episode about the black cat go listen to it it's great it's two parts it's fantastic um i will continue to show for myself very fast and under my breath whenever i'm given the chance um but it was the first time that the mist had been taught to me in an academic context and i watched it in. um I watched the filmed version on my own when I was in high school. I read the short story when I was a high school senior. Um, I think The Mist, as a study of human uh, human nature, works in parallel with Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Um, and since The Lottery is so oft-taught in high schools, I would think that The Mist also deserves a place in that sort of discussion, though maybe a little more complex in some of the... Um, portrayals of religion and fanaticism and desperation, I do think there's an interesting parallelism that can be drawn between those two stories. And given that one is taught, I don't see why the other one wouldn't do. Um I wanted to thank you once again for coming on with me. Dad, it's absolutely been fantastic. We've had an excellent conversation. I know you've never done this before and you're probably more than a little bit worried that you would come across either too snobby too doofusy or too stumbly. There was some stumbling, don't you worry. It's fine. Everyone does it. I do it. <laughs> but um I really appreciate you coming on. I know this is something completely new. I know you hadn't looked at Castillado since you taught it. But I really, really appreciate you donating your time to a podcast and uh not laughing too hard uh at the name of the
1: show. Well Owen, I can't tell you how proud I am of you and uh how great Uh, it has been it it has really been my pleasure to do this with you Uh, I really enjoyed it and um, I'm grateful that uh, you included me and that I I have a little bit of knowledge I can impart with you and for you and uh, I'm just looking forward to this week we can celebrate your graduation and uh, and I can listen to this podcast too (laughs)
0: Say hi to the dogs. Uh, they managed to get themselves into the episode, as did Mom, even though it wasn't planned. We should have thrown a question about Edgar Allan Poe at Mom while she was busy uh, yelling at the dogs, shouldn't we?
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. That, uh, oh, and don't freaking me not into imagine. your
0: silly podcast thing.
1: That's right. <laughs> Thanks That's for coming right. on.
0: Do you have any pardon words for the dear listeners at home?
1: Uh. Uh, No, I don't. Uh, I think (laughs) you're great. And uh, uh, I, I enjoyed my time. Thank you. Thank you so much.